Welcome to Scientific American's Science Talk, posted on September 16th, 2015. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... There was a loss of tropical rainforest, and the apes basically had to knuckle walk, and they had to go on what we call fallback foods, where they were eating tubers, and it was a very tough time, because fruits which contained fructose weren't available that much. And so the, the mutation would have provided a survival advantage. That's Richard Johnson. He's a professor of medicine at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora, Colorado, specializing in the study of the underlying causes of diabetes, obesity, hypertension, and kidney disease. And he and University College London anthropologist Peter Andrews are the co-authors of an article hot off the presses in the October Scientific American titled The Fat Gene. And the subtitle really spells it out. A genetic mutation in prehistoric apes may underlie today's pandemic of obesity and diabetes. I spoke to Richard Johnson by phone. So I remember... I think I started reading about thrifty genes, fat genes, maybe going back to the 70s in the, in the popular literature, talking about specifically the obesity and diabetes epidemic among Native Americans in the U.S. Southwest. And it appears that uh, the idea of the fat gene, the thrifty gene, has gone in and out of fashion, and now you think you've really hit on something that could explain this whole phenomenon. Well, thank you very much. Uh, yes, uh, indeed, the thrifty gene hypothesis was actually generated by Jim Neal in the early 1960s to ex try to explain why people, were, why there were so many people becoming diabetic at that time. And he was a geneticist. Correct. Little did he know how, how much worse it was going to get over the next 50 years. But, uh, you know, at that time, they were still concerned that there was a rise in obesity and diabetes that was occurring even back in the late 50s. And in fact, if you, if you look back, uh, you know, diabetes was present in only two to three people per 100,000 population in 1900. And it just has been increasing significantly ever since and then uh, has rapidly increased in the last 30, 40 years. Uh, likewise, obesity in 1900 was present in only about 3% of 50-year-olds. And, of course, it uh, has been increasing dramatically over the last century. Now 70% uh, of people are overweight or obese. So it, it's really, uh, it's not just uh, because we're living longer, because actually uh, even children are becoming obese, and you know, one in six children is obese today in the U.S. So this is really quite a rise in obesity and diabetes. Now, it's been leveling off the last few years, but it's definitely been a, a major concern. So the question is, why? Right. Those figures that you were quoting were all for the United States, right? Yes, the United States and uh, and Europe, uh, especially England, right. Okay. Um, yes, and also there's been a dramatic rise in high blood pressure. In 1900, there were only about 5% of the population was uh, hypertensive, uh, defined as a systolic blood pressure greater than 140, uh, in, in, at least in 50-year-olds. And today, it's over 30%. 
And there was this idea that Neil came up with that there, there's got to be an evolutionary basis for the ability to really pile on the fat under times, uh, during lean times. That's right. So what he did was uh, he did a lot of studies in uh, indigenous uh, tribes, and he did some work with the Yanomami Indians uh, and other tribes. And, and uh, in people on native diets, they, there was uh, very, very little obesity. But he was seeing that there was a significant increase in obesity and diabetes with Western diet. And he wondered if there might be some genetic predisposition that might be uncovered uh, in the Western diet that, that would lead to obesity. And basically, he came up with the idea that maybe in our past, there was a period of time when food was not so available and in which uh, intermittent food shortages or famine might occur. And that perhaps under those settings, that if you acquired a mutation or a genetic change that would provide a survival advantage under a situation where there was not so much uh, food availability, that you might be able to learn how to be more efficient at storing fat, or the, the mutation might, might provide a, a means for, for storing fat and making you insulin resistant that might help survival in those times of food deprivation. But then, if you carried this mutation and now we're in a, a world where food was plentiful, that uh, suddenly this ability to store fat would become a disadvantage and suddenly you would be at higher risk for developing obesity and diabetes. So this was the, the basic idea that he generated in the early 1960s. Seems like a very reasonable hypothesis, but the problem was that it was difficult to identify exactly what the mutation or mutations might be. Exactly. And, and th there was this assumption for a while that some people would carry the gene and others wouldn't because some people are getting overweight and others aren't. So it was thought that this wasn't necessarily a genetic change that affected the entire population, but it might be a, a genetic change that might predispose some people to obesity and others not. And one of our insights was that perhaps the mutation affects everybody, but it's the exposure to certain foods that un, uh, unveil its, its full effect. You did an interesting thing. You teamed up with, I mean, most geneticists work with other geneticists or with molecular biologists, but you teamed up with an anthrop a physical anthropologist. Yes. So the way that happened was kind of interesting. I was uh, studying a substance called uric acid, and uric acid is well known to be the cause of gout. It's, it's basically a breakdown product of DNA and RNA, uh, and it circulates in our blood. Is a, and most people have thought of it as just kind of a, a, a waste that we excrete in the urine or in the gut, uh, and, and that if it gets too high in the blood, it, it can crystallize in joints and cause inflammation and the disease we know as gout. Uh, and for years, it was just thought to be the cause of gout. But it had been discovered 
back in the 50s, and actually if you go way back into the late 1800s, that people with gout not uncommonly developed diabetes and high blood pressure and kidney disease and obesity and heart disease. And pretty soon by the 1960s and 1970s, there were many, many studies showing that if you had gout or even if you only had a high uric acid in your blood but not didn't even have gout, that you were at really significant increased risk for developing obesity and diabetes and high blood pressure and heart disease. So then became a controversy. Could uric acid actually have a role in these conditions or is it just that people who are overweight or diabetic, could they just have higher uric acids and that's why you get gout and that's is why there's that association. And in the late 1990s, the Framingham, which is the Framingham uh, Heart uh, Study Group. This is one of the biggest and most long-term health studies in the history of epidemiology. Right. This is probably the number one epidemiology group in the world. And they were the ones that linked smoking with lung cancer. And, and they're extremely... Uh, well-respected. But they came out with a paper in the late 1990s saying that they were convinced that the elevation in uric acid in people with heart disease was a secondary process. It wasn't that the uric acid caused heart disease. It was that people with heart disease have a high uric acid. And they said that uric acid is not a true risk factor for heart disease or any cardiovascular problem, and it shouldn't even be measured. And uh, <laughs> yours truly realized that they were making two assumptions, and one was that a, a, a risk factor had to be, quote, independent of other risk factors to be a real risk factor. And what they had done, what I'm trying to explain, is that they had found that uric acid was strongly associated with high blood pressure, and strongly associated with diabetes and kidney disease. And so they said, well, if we actually use statistics, it's not independent of hypertension as a cause of heart disease, and therefore it's not causal. Mm -hmm. But there's an, the assumption is that uric acid may not, you know, has to cause heart disease as an independent risk factor. I mean, independently in a direct fashion that uric acid would cause heart disease directly and it wasn't uh it wasn't independent of high blood pressure but what if the uric acid caused the high blood pressure and that was why it caused heart disease mm -hmm. and that is an, uh, an assumption they were making and i raised that in a letter to the editor and i also said that you know the other problem is that the way we a lot of science is done is not to just look at associations, but to actually take an animal, a laboratory animal, and directly determine what happens when you raise uric acid in its blood. And actually, no one had done that. And in 1999, my group raised uric acid in rats, and we expected to see nothing. But in fact, the animals developed high blood pressure. And subsequently, 
Numerous studies, including the Framingham Heart Study Group themselves, showed that uric acid could predict the development of hypertension. In other words, it, it occurred before the hypertension. Mm-hmm. And if you had a high uric acid, you were at dramatic increased risk for developing high blood pressure. It's a little mind-boggling that nobody did an animal study. I know. It's totally amazing. So one of the problems, one of the reasons that no one had done it in the rat was because uh, the rats have an enzyme called uricase. And this is an enzyme in their liver that degrades uric acid. So rats have very low uric acid levels compared to man because they have this enzyme uricase. And so in order to raise uric acid in the rat, I had to give it an inhibitor for uricase. And this prevented the animals from degrading the uric acid. And then the uric acid went up in their blood, and that's when they developed high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And so we then went on and identified the biologic pathway by which that occurred, and then when people start, when we started showing that people with high uric acid developed high blood pressure, this was then shown in over 18 to 20 studies, all found uric acid to be a major predictor for high blood pressure. And then in a series of clinical studies, we actually lowered uric acid in young, adult, uh, young adolescents, actually, with, with high uric acid and high blood pressure, and we normalized the blood pressure in about 80% of them just by lowering the uric acid. And this was work done with Daniel Feig, who's a professor uh, of pediatrics at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. But at the time, we were working together in Texas, and we had this remarkable finding. And subsequently, other groups have also found that lowering uric acid has blood pressure lowering benefits. And now they're big clinical trials because all these studies have been kind of small studies of 30 or 50 people. So uh, it's not proven that lowering uric acid improves blood pressure, but in all these studies, it was they were positive and now big studies are ongoing. So then this led me to realize that uric acid might have a role in high blood pressure And I became interested in why humans didn't have uricase, whereas most mammals did. So it took me into the literature, and I discovered by my reading that, um, that I didn't discover this actually, but I read this, that uh, all the great apes and humans lost uricase due to a mutation in uricase that occurred about 15 million years ago. And there are there are ways to actually identify when a mutation occurs by looking at similarities across species. You can actually use computer modeling to generate a date of when the mutation occurred. And that led me to realize that it occurred in a period called the Miocene, which was about 20 to 5 or 7 million years ago. And it was a period of time when the when the apes first basically evolved. So the first ape evolved around 20 million years ago, 22 million years ago. And uh, it was during this period of time that the apes increased in the number of species and, 
and uh, it was a fairly interesting time. So I decided I needed to learn about this, and I contacted David Pilbeam, who's a, a world expert on apes, and, and uh, he and I had several conversations, but it was, it was a very interesting time because in the early Miocene, around 20 million years ago, the, the world was very warm, and the, the apes were living in tropical rainforests, and then there started to be global cooling. And uh, by eight or nine million years ago, many of the apes had become extinct, especially the ones that had moved into Europe. So we, we published a paper way back then, or I published a paper with our group saying, you know, maybe this mutation occurred at a time when, when basically the apes were leaving their trees and learning how to knuckle walk. And maybe that this was important in helping maintain blood pressure under settings where salt intake might've been very low. Mm -hmm. And we, we actually showed that this mutation, if we inhibited uricase in the rat, it, it really particularly raised blood pressure under low salt conditions. And so this was the beginning. After that, I moved to the university of Florida where we continued to study uric acid, and we began to realize that this uric acid story was much bigger because we found that if it, that uric acid also seemed to have a role in other conditions. And, and uh, we found one way you can raise uric acid is to feed an animal sugar. And, you know, normally uh, we think of gout as being caused by, you know, drinking beer and eating shrimp. <laughs> And it's true that the foods that have what you call high purines can raise uric acid. But there's another food that can raise uric acid as well, and that's sugar. And particularly, it's a type of sugar called fructose. And fructose is the main sugar of fruit, but it's also a, a principal component of table sugar and of high fructose corn syrup. And... To make a long story short, we started studying this. When we fed animals fructose, they developed obesity and fatty liver and elevated blood pressure and uh, inflammation and insulin resistance and all the features of metabolic syndrome. In fact, it was that you can create metabolic syndrome in animals by giving them fructose. And as we studied it, we discovered that you didn't even have to feed them excessive calories. If they had a diet high in sugar, they, they got certain features of metabolic syndrome, even, even under caloric restriction, like fatty liver and uh, diabetes and so forth. And, and we realized that, that fructose was having effects that were, could not be explained by its calorie content. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so this was kind of a big discovery for us because at the time there was a lot of discussion in the literature about calories, but we could we could create a diabetic animal by calorically restricting them if we gave them a high sugar diet. That's so, really amazing. Yeah, scary. It was scary. So we knew that it raised uric acid. So uh, Taka Nakagawa working with me, we said, you know what, let's lower uric acid and see if we can block the hypertension that occurs within our model. And it, and it did. But the amazing thing was it also blocked the insulin resistance and some of the fat in the liver, and it had all these other effects. That's with this high-fructose diet. Right. And so then we started studying it, and we had this terrible discovery 
that uric acid actually encourages fat formation and actually particularly in response to fructose. And it was about that time that I started thinking again about the Miocene and the fact that these apes were eating fruit and that there, there was this known period of starvation that occurred that occurred over millions of years for these apes. And then it, the idea came to me that perhaps there was this mutation in uricase that would allow the animals to have higher uric acids that would make them store fat more easily in response to fruit at a time when there was global cooling and the loss of fruits. So that took me back to the literature and I realized that the world expert, the world expert on the Miocene and not just on the primates, but also on the flora and fauna and the foods was a, a gentleman named Peter Andrews at the Museum of Natural History in London. And I had been invited to Dublin to give a talk and I made sure that I would stop in London so that I could meet this uh, famous anthropologist and could tell him about this idea. And so I went to the Museum of Natural History and he came down and was a wonderful man. And he took me into uh, his office and we had uh, an afternoon that was extremely insightful. And I told him my idea and then he told me an incredible story about how around 17 million years ago, this global cooling was occurring and the water levels fell and a land bridge formed between Africa and Eurasia or Europe. And up to then, all the primates, all the apes lived in Africa. But as the global cooling occurred, this land bridge formed and these apes were able to escape and into Europe and Asia. And not only apes, but anteaters and giraffes and all kinds of animals made it across. But in Europe, it was still warm. And so they continued to live uh, the normal life, which was to live in these tropical rainforests and to live on fruit. But as it became cooler and cooler, there was a loss of, of a lot of the fruit trees and a change to some deciduous trees and some savannas. And these uh, apes began to lose, their, the, the availability of fruit began to decrease, particularly during the cooler months. And there was a loss of fig trees, which was particularly important food staple for these apes. And here was the fantastic insight. Peter had discovered, along with a guy named David Bagan, that our ancestors probably came from a European ape. And based on the fossil record, they were able to show that it was that what happened was was in our past, some apes went to Europe and it was the European apes skeleton that correlated best with with the features of modern apes and humans today. And so he had previously reported that what must have happened is that some of these apes went into Europe and then went back to Africa 
and some also went to Southeast Asia to become the orangutan. But it was these apes that came back that then replaced the African apes and went on to become the great apes and also the humans, so that we all have some kind of, of a relative that came from Europe. And he had actually identified a species called Kenyapithecus as a very likely candidate. And he'd been studying this Kenyapithecus in Turkey, and had found that they, they showed evidence of intermittent starvation. They were uh, probably starving on a seasonal basis, and he could tell that by looking at their teeth. The teeth, when they're growing, uh, the enamel will develop a ring of, of what we call hypoplasia, basically thinning of the enamel when there's famine. And he could see rings on these teeth of, I think, numerous Kenyapithecus apes. I think he had a collection of nine of them that all showed this intermittent starving. And all the apes died in, off in Europe, but he believes that some of these Kenyapithecus and other species made it back to Africa. And in fact, uh, there was some Kenyapithecus skeletons discovered several million years that are dated several million years later in Africa, suggesting that these apes had served, that many of them died off in Europe, but some of them made it back to Africa. Well, while we were talking about this, which was fascinating, he also made a very important point. So he asked me, you know, about this mutation, and I explained to him how in animals we could show that, the, that we could potentiate the effects of fructose to store fat that we could potentiate the effects of fructose to induce insulin resistance, which keeps the blood glucose higher in your blood, which is important for the brain. And so I realized that this mutation would have been a survival advantage in the setting of food shortage. And then he had the brilliant insight to say, well, you know, what happened was that in Europe, the global cooling was so severe that there was a loss of tropical rainforest and the apes basically had to knuckle walk and they had to go on what we call fallback foods where they were eating tubers and it was a very tough time because fruits which contained fructose weren't available that much. And so the, the mutation would have provided a survival advantage in Europe. But he said in Africa, even though there was global cooling as well, temperatures were still much higher because just because there's global cooling doesn't mean that temperature's the same everywhere. And in Africa, temperatures still stayed hot. So although they got cooler, the tropical rainforest retracted, but never disappeared. So the apes were still able to eat fruit year round. And so there was no survival advantage to having this mutation in Africa, whereas there was in Europe. And boom, then suddenly I, we realized that this mutation, which timed exactly to this period in, in Europe when there was starvation going on, probably occurred there. And what was interesting is the mutation is shared by the orangutan and the uh, great apes and humans, so that it explained that a common site where this mutation would have hit one species that then survived and spread to the rest of the world, and then evolved into the different species of ape today and, and into humans. Right. It has to be a common ancestor for all the extant apes and humans. Exactly. So the whole thing fit. So then uh, we started studying it more, 
And uh, there's a wonderful, brilliant, two brilliant scientists, uh, Stephen Benner and Eric Gosher, who are molecular geneticists and uh, biologists. And Steve was one of the first ones to ever resurrect an extinct gene. And Eric was his student and went on to become a full professor himself. And working with Eric, Eric actually resurrected this extinct uricase from the primate, from the Kenyapithecus, we think. And then Miguel and Aspa and my group put it into cells and showed that when the uricase is present, it blunted the effects of fructose to store fat in liver cells. But when he took away it and knocked it down or, or removed it, suddenly the human liver cells could accumulate a lot more fat in response to the same dose of fructose. That's incredible. Incredible yeah. story. You know, this is, it, really, it's better than the Da Vinci Code. It's really <laughs> such a great detective story. It was. It's a, it's a true adventure story for sure. And it's not finished because uh, although we've been able to show that this is, act, this is a, a pathway in laboratory animals, the proof will be if the future shows that uric acid has all these effects in humans. And there are pilot studies out there that clearly show that lowering uric acid appears to have benefits on blood pressure, uh, on kidney disease. There's a couple studies that, pilot studies that show that it helps prevent weight gain in adolescents and in adults. There's a study that's going to come out soon that shows that lowering uric acid can improve insulin resistance in humans. But they're all small studies, and we need large studies. Um, and certainly, the, it's sort of rocking the boat because a lot of people have not viewed uric acid as a true risk factor, but there's more and more excitement about it. And so time will tell. But it, uh, it definitely is a pretty interesting story. And the important thing in terms of medical practice, future medical practice, is at least now we have a good candidate to look at. Right. And, uh, you know, there is this tremendous interest, and now there are clinical trials on lowering uric acid that are going on in Australia and Europe and the United States and Japan. And so hopefully we'll get some answers to this uh, really interesting possibility. It, it would be wonderful because it's remediable. It's something we can treat. And there are drugs out there that are generic and inexpensive uh, that can help lower uric acid and, uh, and potentially have some benefits on this. It, if, you know, there's so many people suffering from this that if this turns out to have a lot of benefits, it would certainly would be, uh, would be wonderful because it wouldn't cost very much to, uh, to, to treat it's only pennies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this this as I said, it's a great detective story. You can read about it in the in the October issue of Scientific American. And in addition to the uh, the information in the text, there are some beautiful illustrations and and charts that'll that'll help you follow the whole line of reasoning that uh, you engaged in here. And it's it's just really fascinating. And I thank you for your time. Thank you, Steve. It's a real pleasure. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can also check out the entire October issue of the magazine, including the Richard Johnson-Peter Andrews article, The Fat Gene. 
And follow us on Twitter, where you get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.